What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Let's kick this thing off. Chamira Gamage is a philanthropy manager at Amnesty International and a co-founder at Thinkers.io. In this conversation, we discuss Julian Assange's story, freedom of the press, why Julian was arrested, the potential issues with this case, how a pardon would work, and what the potential outcome will be. I really enjoyed this conversation with Chamira, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. First up is Unstoppable Domains. Everyone's tried to send a Bitcoin transaction where you've got to send the Bitcoin to a random string of letters and numbers that serves as a wallet address. Well, Unstoppable Domains is solving that problem in partnership with Coinbase Wallets. Coinbase Wallet has now added support for .crypto domains. Unstoppable Domains provides that all-in-one solution for those blockchain domains. So you can go to unstoppabledomains.com and you can buy any .crypto domain. I have pomp.crypto. You can go buy your name, your company name, or a phrase you like. Once you buy it, no one else has it. You can then tell somebody, hey, don't send me Bitcoin to my Bitcoin wallet address. Instead, send it to pomp.crypto and it'll come right to your wallet. So head on over to unstoppabledomains.com and buy your .crypto domain today. Just like regular .com domains, once somebody else buys that name, it's no longer available for anyone else to purchase it. So whether it's your name, your company name, or a phrase you like, go to unstoppabledomains.com and make sure you pick up your .crypto domain before somebody else unstoppabledomains.com. I'm a big fan and you will be too if you go use unstoppabledomains.com. Next up is crypto.com. They're an all-in-one platform that allows you to buy, sell, store, earn, loan, or invest crypto all from one place. They've got over 1 million users currently using the crypto.com app. Crypto.com, not only is it a fantastic URL, but it's the place where mass adoption is occurring. So head on over to Crypto.com, the all-in-one platform that allows you to buy, sell, store, earn, loan, or invest crypto all from one single place. Crypto.com, mass adoption is happening at Crypto.com. Lastly is Level, LVL. They're a new crypto investing platform that I'm an investor in. They allow anyone to trade an unlimited number of times per month for free. That's right. They are a free crypto exchange. They have no trading fees and no spreads in the spot market. They make money through other products and services. So the exchange is completely free. No hidden fees, no trading fees, no spreads. If you buy or sell Bitcoin on any exchange, you're spending too much money on trading fees. So head on over to Level LVL to save money and trade as many times as you want. LVL.co slash pomp. Again, LVL.co slash pomp. Level, a new crypto investing platform that is completely free. LVL.co slash pomp. Go check it out. All right, let's get in this episode with Chimera. I think you guys will really enjoy this one. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. I'm super excited for this episode. I've got Chamira here. Thank you so much for doing this, sir. My pleasure, man. Very happy to be here. Absolutely. Uh, You obviously have an accent. You're living in Australia right now. Uh, Let's go back, though, before we get to all the fun stuff. Uh, Who are you? Where did you grow up? And kind of what's your background before you get to Amnesty International? Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, So, yeah, as you said, Definitely a, a strong Aussie accent. I've, um, I've, I've born and raised in Australia um, and uh, ha- I'm working at Amnesty International at the moment. My background um, in general has been, uh, I did a uh, human rights um, uh, law degree at university, which certainly put me on the path for, um, you know, getting involved and further in human rights and, and the international space, I would say, uh, in general, with a little bit of politics, international relations thrown in. Um, and then I had a big focus being like a relationship management in recruitment. Um 
did that for many years and uh, was a little bit uh, unfulfilled towards the end. And I was looking for a, a way to connect my, my sort of passions and, and areas of interest and, and skills. Um, and it led me to Amnesty International, which was obviously, um, you know, a, it's a huge international organization working on all the, the causes that I, I care about. Some in particular, I would say, um, and it, uh, it led me to where I am today. What is Amnesty International for those that don't know? Amnesty is the it's the largest uh, human rights organization in the world. It's been around since 1961, um, started by uh, a human rights lawyer named Peter Benenson, um, who who was uh, basically raising a toast to freedom um, and wanted to ensure that um, people around the world could you know, condemn any acts that, that, that jeopardized human rights that took place around the world by sending letters predominantly. Uh, from there, Amnesty's grown to 150 countries, um, about just over 10 million supporters uh, around the world and um, has grown in influence with governments, with, with, with people, um, speaking up for people who don't... Um, who can't amplify their concerns or have been mistreated around the world. Uh, they generally look to amnesty as, as a bit of a, an independent pillar to, to stand up for human rights and, and protect them. One of the cases that uh, you've been involved in is the Julian Assange uh, kind of story. And this goes back many years. Uh, people who are listening to this, some of them will be experts on the details and some will be beginners. Maybe just sure. walk us through who is Julian Assange and why has um, his story become so publicly known and, and uh, has so many people kind of paying attention? Absolutely. So, as we were saying earlier, you know, it's 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 one of the most complicated cases, um, and backstories is certainly important. And and I think putting it all together in an easy to digest way is super important for people to actually understand why it's important, particularly a week out from what I would say is one of the biggest trials and verdicts of our time. In terms of his backstory, Julian um, uh, is a publisher. Uh, Julian uh, is a journalist. He basically um, performed activities that that many journalists perform today and, and have for a very long time, which is receiving information from different sources uh, and then publishing it on a platform which he created, which I believe started in about 2006 called WikiLeaks, which many people would have heard of. Um, now, the role that WikiLeaks played in, in broader society and, and particularly in the media journalism space has been pretty profound. Uh, but what he did basically was, um, in a sense, uh, you know, publish information directly straight from the horse's mouth, I would say. So that it basically got around any inherent biases that took place when reporting from journalists or media orgs, which, you know, like any organization, plenty of pros and cons, um, but certainly there can be vested interests, there can be uh, inherent bias, there can be slants put in, um, in, in the reporting of, of information. And once again, information is the grounding for which we all make our judgments on the world, uh, how we think, how we vote ultimately. So for that to be as transparent and, and, and you know, um, clear as possible, you the more raw the information, the better. Uh, obviously, keeping in line with national security, um, not putting anyone at risk, etc. So, with that in mind, um, WikiLeaks published information, including emails, um, you know, and uh, and various uh, reports that they believed were in the public interest, which makes us more informed uh, today. And so, his background was predominantly publishing. His his um, experience prior to that, I believe, was in uh, tech um, and software and IT. But that's certainly what shaped his, um, yeah, his career. And so, obviously, WikiLeaks uh, has become, you know, a, a known quantity on, on an international stage. Uh, there's a lot of sensitive information. Some would argue confidential. Some would argue uh, is important for the public light um, yeah. and, and kind of a public conversation. What is the type of content? Like, are there specific examples that stick out into your head that were kind of milestone uh, type publishing um, or leaks that WikiLeaks posted so people can get a sense of what that content is? Absolutely. I think the ones that stood out the most and the ones that are referred to the most, um, you know, in, in general, are uh, the Iraq war logs is what they were called. Uh, in 2010, um, there was there was a release of many cables, um, as they were called, and also a a video in particular, which many people may be aware of, of the Apache helicopter and uh, gunning down civilians, um, in, including uh, reporters themselves. And the nature that it was done and, and uh, the sort of crassness 
in how that that action was performed was was shocking to people around the world. Um, a lot of people suspect this takes place uh, in wars, and you know it, it is a war, um, and uh, no one gets to really see the the details uh, unless you're on the ground. And I think we're kind of covered here in the in in the West, and I think that for many people was the was the um, sort of anchor for wow you know, that's good to know. I didn't know that this was being performed in our names uh, as the public. The Guantanamo Bay prisoner um, files as well as to how they were being treated. 2007, I believe, was um, another big one, which which shaped people's perceptions. Um, there was a lot of emails um, regarding uh, the, the, the DNC in America, um, treatment of, of, of Bernie Sanders, um, and, and the voting within the party itself um, and conversations that took place. So I won't get into the, the absolute details, but, um, yeah, it, it certainly revealed uh, aspects of, um, you know, uh, governments and institutions that we place a lot of trust in uh, and, and made it a lot clearer as to how they act on, on, an, on a regular basis. And that's really important um, for us, again, to make our mind up, to be informed citizens and, uh, and know what, what what world we're operating and, and and sort of playing in yeah yeah and i think part of it was like one half of the population was surprised by all of this and, and frankly shocked uh and then yeah. another half it just confirmed what their you know greatest fears or or kind of the conspiracy type uh viewpoint was right it was just like hey i always thought this happened but like okay now there's proof um so, exactly. so it really you know pulled a lot of folks in and then obviously those that are in powerful positions or positions of influence uh this sure. wasn't exactly the type of information that they wanted to be publicly exposed um Absolutely, you know in, yeah. in a bunch of different forms and factions uh so julian assange doing journalistic work uh yeah. today has been arrested uh in the united states there is the belief that there's the freedom of press uh there's a lot of uh nuance there's a lot of uh legal precedent that shapes that view in the United States. Uh, how do we get from the publication of confidential or sensitive information via WikiLeaks uh, in a journalistic type uh, perspective to him sitting behind bars today? Like, wh what is that path? Uh, and maybe talk through a little bit um, in, in terms of Julian's perspective and then those who might disagree with his perspective. Fair enough. Yeah. Um it's been a bit of a long road, I would say. A lot of um, factors have, have come come to play, and all which kind of need unpacking in their own way. So, um, after the war logs, um, he was actually uh, in Sweden, and, and this is quite a controversial, um, you know, aspect as well, which which kind of um, framed how he was perceived publicly, but. Um, you know, my understanding is there were uh, allegations of, of rape charges in Sweden, which he uh, faced up to in terms of a um, uh, an online hearing or an on it was like one of the first extradition processes that he had to go through. Um, charges were dropped and and the case was was dropped um it was reopened in future i think many years later um due, due to some encouragement um but during that time he felt that um there was a concerted effort uh to get him to to um uh you know to the us that ultimately based on his actions and publications the us will want to get him and and that that that's fairly logical that obviously you know i can't imagine them wanting to just let the guy sit so you know, um, they they um, there was a connection there with London as well. So to try and get him to um, face up in London and exactly the scenario that's taking place now, which is actually an extradition treaty between the US and, and the UK, uh, for him to be um, trialed in, in London and the UK and then be sent to the, to the US. The nature of what that would look like wasn't clear, but that was the general suspicion. Um, so he was actually treated as uh, an asylum seeker, which is which is not the term you'd normally think of with with um, with this instance. Um, but there were many countries that that felt that his he was being chased after, um, you know, and uh, and for the wrong reasons, and that it was unjust. And so a number of countries around the world offered him um, asylum or refuge, uh, and Ecuador being one of them. So whilst being in London, the Ecuadorial uh, embassy uh, in London granted him. Uh, that refuge. And so he spent a lot of time there. I believe it was, uh, uh, you know, seven to eight years he spent in, in Ecuador um, with them saying, you are a persecuted individual. We recognize your actions and the treatment uh, that, that, that you've, um, 
you know, experienced and that there's a general consensus that the US will want to get you and, and mistreat you further, um, you know, to, to kind of narrow it down. So he spent a lot of time there. He was still performing WikiLeaks actions whilst in the embassy. Um, and, you know, from the US and, and UK perspective, I can imagine that would be, um, you know, particularly when he would be revealing uh, actions that they were purporting. I can imagine they weren't, wouldn't be too happy and would still be trying to um, get him to, let's say, face the music based on their own terms, whether it was right or wrong. Um, and as an international community, as a, as a human rights organisation with Amnesty, there was certainly an acknowledgement that that was, that was wrong, that was breaking a number of human rights laws um, and that it would set a really bad precedent for future journalists, um, you know, and, and publishers around the world um, who wanted to perform similar actions in the public's interest and that he was being used as a scapegoat. Now, that uh, has come to be, um, so last year would probably be one of the most important years in this whole story and unfolding because he was um, literally um given up, I would say, by the Ecuadorian um, embassy um, and then physically dragged uh, out and taken to Belmarsh Prison in London. Okay, now, be- before before we continue, uh, I want to yeah. clarify a couple of things. So sure. Julian Assange is in London, uh, yeah. feels like kind of the walls are closing in around him. He is likely to uh, continue to face legal obstacles, potentially arrest, uh, there's all kinds of uh, allegations um, yeah. that are levied against him. I, I don't want to go into uh, whether they are um, you know, guilty, not guilty. The courts exactly. around the world will figure that stuff out. Uh, exactly. But there was definitely allegations. Um, some of them were uh, not that you know shocking or damning, and some of them were really, really bad. Right, and so, so there's a whole spectrum there. Uh, but at some point, he realizes I need to find asylum with a country that is willing to treat me like a refuge. Um, Talk through, and, and so what he ultimately does is he literally walks into the Ecuadorian embassy in London uh, and stays there for years um, and, and kind of has this uh, refuge. Talk through what does asylum mean? Like when somebody is looking for asylum, just yeah. at a high level for those that don't understand it, like yeah. when he walks into that door, why is he safe even though he is technically in the city of London, but he is now in an Ecuadorian building and how that works? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, in terms of asylum, it's, um, you know, it's basically um, an unfounded fear of persecution based on a number of factors. It could be religious, it could be, um, you know, your your sexuality could be, um, you know, a variety. And basically, if anyone falls under those factors, they're, they're considered um, a refugee and should be granted asylum. I don't know the act, the absolute specifics of, of that instance and how it was defined, but they did consider that he was a political prisoner um, and somebody whose life was at risk from, from governments um, based on actions he performed they believed weren't illegal whatsoever. Um, and this also kind of fell into the narrative of Assange being a, a, a hacker, which, you know, which was a part of the trial that he's facing at the moment um, and where there has been no proof uh, whatsoever that that's the case. And again, it's, it's another word that you can, you know, sl- slap onto someone as a label and it just kind of sticks. And then um, there's no second thought. But um, yeah, so without him being a, a, a hacker, um, there was there was certainly grounds to say that he was being persecuted. And so asylum, um, it's basically an, an entity of the Ecuadorian um, state uh, in London, and he's based on international law protections. Um, he he's allowed to to um, to reside there and, and not be touched, I would suppose, unless there was extenuating circumstances where that embassy decided, you know what, uh, we're going to cancel this uh, this refuge, regardless of how that internationally plays between us and other countries, um, because they were staunch staunch um, advocates of him being protected. And I believe there was a change in government in Ecuador. I believe um, Carrera, I think, was the initial um, leader that granted him um, asylum. And as there was a change in future, um, there was also a bit of a change of tone towards the end of that, so coming up to last year, where there are a number of reports of of Asanda's activities taking place in the embassy itself that they felt weren't appropriate and they decided to um, give him up, let's say. There was a hefty um, uh, 
uh, loan given to to Ecuador not long after that took place as well in the billions. So that's an interesting one to look into. But that aside, um, yeah, there was a lot of activities that also took place, just to clarify, within the embassy, uh, such as spying. So there was spying of all the guests that came into the embassy in the bathrooms. There was spying on his um, legal proceedings, which in many countries, if that took place, it would be like, see you later, that's it. You know, we're not going to continue this. Uh, that was considered recently and taken into account, which was good, but again, shouldn't have happened. So it was quite a interesting space going on there. There was reports of bugging, uh, plenty of evidence, even whistleblowers that worked there said that there was a lot of things going on that just wasn't appropriate. So a lot, it was a quite an interesting time towards the end. Um, and then he was given up to London who took him into Goldmark. So while he's got the um, uh, kind of the asylum, he's there, he's protected for a number of years. What stops the London police, the FBI, Pretty much anyone with big guns and a lot of men from kicking down the door and just going and, and taking them. Like, like, what is the uh, the reason why they don't do that? Is it a respect for international law or is it something yeah. else? Is it that the Ecuador will literally shoot guns from armed guards to protect the embassy? Like, like how does that work? Yeah, it is. No, it is respect for um, international law, which. Um, a lot of countries kind of play with to, to their own advantage, to be honest, but it's more of like an international consensus and agreement. So, um, you know, there are, there are conventions, the refugee convention, for example, the rights of child, like there are a variety that countries subscribe to, um, you know, uh, and, and they have to sort of, sort of stick to it, but there has been instances of countries that just kind of skirt around at different times to suit their own agendas. Um, in this instance, it, it would be that. I think it would be just far too blatant to come in storming. Um, as I mentioned, it's been a very long process where, um, you know, the, the action, the right actions had to kind of um, play out at the right time. It's not like you could just go in willy-nilly, storm the place. It would be a huge breach. And I don't think, um, you know, in my own mind, sort of um, guessing how it would work. I don't think the US would think that it would be worth for a case like this to go that far because of how they would be perceived on an international scale. Um, so, yeah, it's really to keep the peace more than anything and, and adhere to those international human rights standards um, so that, uh, yeah, <laughs> I think, like I said, they pick and choose the case to kind of um, skirt around. And so at some point, uh, Julian Assange is doing – Whatever he's doing inside of the building, uh, again, there's a bunch of debate, good, bad, indifferent. Uh, then the Ecuadorian government, there's this change of power. Uh, but we eventually get to the point where Ecuador now says, you know what? You no longer are going to have this asylum. Uh, yeah. And my understanding, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is like they literally just call the London police and they're like, come get them. Like literally, we're just going to open the front door and like come drag them out. Is that, is that what happens? Correct. Yeah, that was pretty much how it went. It was pretty, um, at that point, it was pretty um, brash and, and in your face, I suppose. But that, And that's where the famous shot up uh, that a lot of people would have seen came from with him kind of being dragged out like with a, with a beard, as you can tell, he has, probably hasn't been living in the best conditions and put into a van and then just quite simply taken uh, away um, uh, for, for further hearings and then put into Belmarsh. And just to clarify, Belmarsh is one of the worst prisons in England. Anyone you talk to says, you know, it's it's extremely rough. And the fact that someone, um, Assange and, and, and the actions he's performed is in Belmarsh is just so out, outlandish and, and ridiculous that um, it's a statement in itself. So, yeah. yeah. And, and when he gets arrested, I'll kind of put that in yeah. air quotes because I don't know if that's actually how they've, you know, labeled this. Uh, but when that occurs, what are the charges against him? Are these new charges? Are these simply the application of previous uh, allegations against him? How does he kind of end up behind bars or what's the rationale there? Yeah, the rationale is, um, so uh, there was a number of things. So with the trial itself, um, they one of the biggest focus points was what I mentioned before about hacking and whether he was um, conspiring to hack information. So, for example, Chelsea Manning was was obviously many people would know was a whistleblower that um, passed on from the inside many documents, um, which WikiLeaks then published again an action that. New York Times, you know, many other papers would do. Um, but but to get him on that sort of technicality was, did he tr conspire to hack this information? Did he conspire to say, look, I will help you hack this. I will illegally ascertain this information. And again, from the, co the, the case notes that I've seen and, and not many people have seen, there doesn't seem to be any evidence of that. Another one was that he um, skipped 
bail um, in London. So that was another technicality. And again, you know, um, this kind of all falls into the context of there was a genuine fear that the exact scenario that's playing out right now was going to happen. And people said, that's ridiculous. You know, you got to face up, et cetera, et cetera. And um, yeah, there's certainly a legal process that has to take place, but all those fears, uh, you know, have, have come to fruition. Um, and, and to add on to that was whether um, anyone was um, harmed from, from his releases. So did anyone, um, you know, get physically um, harmed from their names being revealed in any publications which also ties into the um, questioning from a lot of people about how he isn't a journalist because he didn't retract names. Um, we've seen more than enough evidence. I think a week ago there was an hour-long chat between him and, and the government saying, look, I've just been up till 4 a.m. deleting as many names as I possibly can. Many witnesses have proven that, Guardian um, journos as well, saying, no, he literally didn't sleep to make sure there were no names involved, that no one was implicated. And again, we're talking millions of cables. So you do the absolute best you possibly can whilst balancing the story that you're trying to put forward. So, um, yeah, again, I haven't seen any evidence, evidence of that um, throughout this trial, but they were the main points. Got it. And so what is the difference between what Julian Assange did and, let's say, the New York Times, Washington Post, you know, organizations that people consider mainstream media that, um, you know, conduct journalism and most people would think that uh, if there is confidential or sensitive information that they got their hands on, they would publish and they would tell the stories and kind of hold people of power, influence or organizations accountable. Uh, What is the difference between Assange and any of those organizations? Well, it's a really good question, um, you know, and, and this is probably the best way to um, to ground this whole this whole conversation is, you know, uh, Obama had the opportunity to um, prosecute Assange and he said, I can't. And uh, many people are asking you know, why. And it, it was called the New York Times problem or predicament because he said, if I prosecuted Julian Assange, I would then have to prosecute the New York Times because so many of these papers perform the exact same function. If he's quite simply a publisher, not even in the US, he's not even in the country, uh, and he's just, he's like a middleman really, he's just revealing information for people to to consume, um, there actually isn't any difference, to be honest. And I think there are certainly journalists that think that, um, you know, the way he he went about publishing information didn't make him a journalist. And now we're getting into the technicalities of an industry where certain players might think one thing culturally, the others might think, no, nah, that's, that's a good culture, that's a bad culture. So um, top line overall, like there wasn't any dispute, um, which also has had to be proven and chipped away at over time to unpack the stereotype and stigma that was put forward by the media, funnily enough, that that also um, um, made so many stories off the back of WikiLeaks publications, we have to remember. Um, so they've profited. They've they've gotten plenty of clicks and readers from, from a lot of WikiLeaks stories. But then when the tide shifted, uh, one, of, one of the first to kind of to shift and turn their back on, on Assange. And again, I completely acknowledge it's an extremely complicated case. It's not black and white, like like many things aren't black and white. There's a lot of space in the grey that has to be unpacked to truly understand. So I think with with this um, instance, there's enough evidence to say he absolutely is a journalist. The same as many different publications, um, and the manner in which he went about it could be the the slight difference, which for me is a cultural thing of an industry. Would there have been a difference if, let's say, uh, Julian Assange simply said, hey, I've built a website. If you have confidential or sensitive information that you would like yeah. to leak, upload mm-hmm. it. I'm actually not going to look at it, and I, it's just going to auto-publish. In some way, he now isn't taking, like, quote-unquote, editorial control or, you know, uh, redacting names and, and kind of there's a whole bunch of downsides to that model. Uh, yeah. But would that have been less risky for him? Like, like would he basically have been able to insulate himself from uh, some of the pressures and, and ultimately the arrest uh, by simply just saying, "Hey, I built a website and anyone can use it," but I don't mm-hmm. actually say publish this. Pub- don't you know? Don't publish that. 
Yeah, that's a good question. As far as I'm aware, I mean, I, I understand. I mean, WikiLeaks is a website um, and, uh, you know, they, they also were one of the first to um, have a Dropbox that um, whistleblowers or anyone could just put information into. So if you didn't feel comfortable passing this on to other organisations or other parties, you could literally put it into the Dropbox. WikiLeaks would, would ascertain it, protect your identity and then publish. Um, but as, for, as far as I understand, it was quite similar to that. I think um, I don't know if he was called an editor per se um but certainly the the sort of figurehead of this of this you know you could call it a publication because it was um compiling information and then just putting it out there through their own through their own channels and and again um it, it was very much an in you know um in line with the internet's culture at the time i suppose which is we've got this big chunk of data this big chunk of information, we're going to put it out there and you can sift through it in your own time. So, um, you know, and that's probably where that, like I mentioned before, that sort of conversation of, oh, is that a journalistic practice? But once again, to be honest, I was way more informed and many people were more informed reading it directly rather than reading someone's interpretation. Um, so I think it was quite similar, to be honest. Yeah. And to be clear, normally if somebody had taken that information and not sent it to Julian Assange and WikiLeaks, they had sent it to the New York Times, Washington Post, whatever, uh, some of it would be quote-unquote verified, right? But once that had been yep. done, they basically would reveal the same information. They just might write their own story and insert their own opinions or facts or, or details, You know, not, not necessarily quote-unquote fake news, but just yeah. they would tell a story around the information. They would never just dump it in terms no. of, hey, come and read it. I think what you're getting at here is like is actually just revealing the source materials yeah. a better journalistic practice because now it allows the reader to make up their own mind after reading the content rather than having to rely yeah. on the journalist or the organization to be that filter that basically tells the story and can use data or information uh, to weave into a story to craft a narrative versus just seeing the actual information for yourself, right? Yeah, correct. And, and look, I think, um, you know, again, there's that there's that nuance and, and the gray uh, aspect of, of journalism, because I mean, it's a fantastic profession. It's extremely valuable. I, I was looking to be a journalist when I was younger as well. Um, you know, and I, I really thought that it was such an it plays such an important role in society. And it absolutely does. And journalism takes many forms. You know, there's a lot of value in reading the source material if you want to be informed on an issue. But then what about the 10 to 20 different forms of journalism that give you like, you know, uh, a nice little blog or a narrative or a backstory to something or an opinion piece like like everything pros and cons. Um, but when it comes to certain types of information, that source material, when it's uncompromised and it's just, again, straight from the horse's mouth, um, I feel makes you more informed. And there are some issues that probably shouldn't really be, you know, shouldn't really go through that filter because they're the issues that are really important for you to know before you vote or make your mind up about the world around you. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I think that, you know, there's, um, it, it takes many forms, definitely pros and cons and benefits to each side, but um, having that source material is just invaluable. So let's talk about moving forward. Uh, Julian Assange yeah. is currently under arrest. Uh, I believe there's an extra extradition uh, interest. I don't, I don't know if that's like a request or, or whatever, but basically the United States would like to bring him to the United States. Uh, it sounds Correct, like there's yeah. some legal proceedings that need to play out to uh, find if that will happen or not. Uh, yep. But kind of where do we go from here? Maybe like what's the risk scenario and then what is kind of the positive perspective of, uh, of where we go from here? Yeah, sure. So yeah, as you mentioned, um, so it, it is an extradition, extradition hearing. So there's a treaty between the US and the UK and um, it basically says, you know, if the US requests to extradite someone to the US for whatever grounds, um, that's fine because it has to go through a court process. However, the caveat is that if they if they believe there's a political, there's inherently a political nature to this trial, then it, it gets scrapped. And so, again, from my perspective and many people's perspectives that have been viewing this case for years uh, and this particular trial, there's certainly evidence that it's political in nature. Like, you know, and I think a lot of people's can feel that in their guts. They kind of know. And I think that's a big thing about this case. A lot of people kind of know there just hasn't been that discussion in the public or information to kind of really go, yeah, okay, 
okay, fair enough. Now it makes sense. But I think we're coming to that. Um, so where we're at now is is a massive crossroads. Where we're at is a week out from the 4th of Jan, which is the verdict of this trial, which has been going since February. Now, um, I'll just unpack this a little bit. So, um, so um, a week out, the options on the table are uh, with Trump's last term, um, uh, you know, like last time in play now, he could pardon him. And a lot of people are calling for a pardon. That's one way to to release Julian. Uh, and just to to remember, um, he's being extradited to the US so that he would face exp- the espionage um, charges, which is the first time in 102 years. So I think the first time ever the US has actually placed these, these big espionage um, charges on a journalist. Um, and he's facing up to 175 years if that was to take place. So we all kind of know where that's going to go. Now he's facing 23 hours a day, solitary confinement, one hour out. It's horrendous, right? Aside from being in Belmarsh, aside from not being given warm clothes in, in, in the freezing cold um, in London. And, um, you know, uh, I, I think a lot of people can see that his treatment in there is just, is, is really bad. He's got a lung condition. So with um, everything going on with COVID, I know that the risks were even higher and there wasn't any sp- special treatment or anything like that to acknowledge that. So he's in a pretty dire situation. All the people I've spoken to that have seen him, spoken to him, have said, mate, this is dire. There's not that much time left to be, to be frank. And, and, you know, um, it's really not looking good. He's got a, um, a lovely partner, Stella, who's been working with Amnesty and, and um, I'm speaking to recently, who's just like, you know, and, and they're two kids, young kids who barely get to see him as well, who are just doing absolutely everything they can to try and, um, ensure that his health is kept more than anything. And that's really dire. So we really hope that he can keep up, you know, the strength and, and, and move forward there. And that's what we're all trying to do. Now, um, if the pardon takes place, that's, that's, a, that's huge. Um, it's a really tough one. Trump's, you know, here it's, it's a shot in the dark. It's really hard to know. Um, when it comes to, um, you know, um, Biden, let's say that he is extradited on the fourth. That's the verdict. I've been told that this could be a long, lengthy process for 12 to 18 months afterwards if it's if there's an appeal. Um, and so we, a lot of people don't think he'll last that long, um, you know, and then if if um, the charges were to be dropped uh, by Biden in the, after the 4th, I think that could be one other avenue, but that's also a bit of a, a tough one. So I think the more discussions that can be have that can be had with his part, his um, team, um, the better. There's been people in the Democratic Party, like AOC's expressed concern. You know, there's people on 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 the Republican Party, like you know, there's there's Ron Paul, Rand Paul. There are people from all sides. In the last year, I've watched this as amnesty has become even more sort of um, prevalent. Um, I've really noticed talking to different parties how much this is just not a nonpartisan issue anymore. It's just not nonpartisan. It's literally one of those things where everyone can kind of come together and go. This is pretty messed up. Freedom of speech, freedom of expression, um, you know, the freedom of the press. Um, they're all kind of on the line with a case like this. Everyone's looking for that one thing that unites us. Biden talks about uniting the population. Trump wants to unite the population. Sure, you know, these are the things that politicians say. There is no better example than this. And it is one of the most important things for the population to be informed, to hold on to these democratic principles that we espouse to the world and hold on too tightly. So I think this is the kind of thing that we, we should all fight for. I've been fighting for this for a long time uh, and watched people who were not even remotely concerned in the last year or two slowly, slowly change their, change their tune, change their tune. And in the last week, we saw Sarah Palin apologise. Um, you know, um, I've seen a number, a New York Times journalist apologise for statements he's made about him. This is crucial, they said. We know where this stands. Um, Larry Sanger, the co-founder of Wikipedia, who I've been speaking to, a really good guy, um, and he was very gracious in saying, look, I made comments in 2011. I changed my mind this week. This is so important for everyone. And I think that's what I'm trying to convey more than anything is that these are the options on the table. This is why it's important. Um, And we, we really need to speak up and make our voices heard now because that actually can, after watching it happen, working at Amnesty, that can make a difference here. Absolutely. One thing that's interesting to me, uh, and even I've done it, is Julian Assange and Edward Snowden. I think both yes. are uh, different cases, uh, yeah. different details, different facts. Um, but many people kind of put them in the bucket of these are folks who uh, held the powerful, the influential uh, accountable. 
they did it in different ways. Um, you know, they, they kind of had their different uh, paths, like I said. But is there a world where an outgoing Trump basically says, you know what? This is a way to make a statement. And I'm going to not just pardon Assange. I'm actually going to pardon Assange and Snowden and maybe others um, yeah. and, and kind of, you know, make that uh, pushback. Uh, when it comes to freedom of the press and, and the way that both of those individuals have been treated, is that something that's part of the conversation, or is it really yeah. just, hey, Assange is the one that's likely to uh, get pardoned if anyone does, and so let's focus the energy there? Yeah, uh, yeah, really good question. I mean, I think uh, looking at history, and, and I've been looking at this recently to kind of see if there are any patterns. But uh, you know, a lot of governments, um, sorry, a lot of uh, presidents do like to to pardon people that they they genuinely have always wanted to in the last minutes it's kind of like their last um chance to add to their legacy uh as to what kind of a president they were and probably help out a few mates i would imagine um so um with all of that in mind um i think obama did pardon chelsea manning and that was a big one so i actually think and i certainly don't want to make predictions on this one but i think that one of them might be um, and, and I think that it would be, it would fall short of Trump's values that he puts forward about freedom of speech, knowing the repercussions of both of Snowden and Assange being, um, in, imprisoned or not pardoned. I think he would do one. And the only reason I don't think he would do both is because people are in his ear. That's my, that's my, um, that's my personal opinion, but it's again really hard to to predict. Um, but I think that if you were a president running on freedom of speech and expression, freedom of the press, and if you were Trump condemning fake news all the time, surely one of them you would think right, you, you would you would do it. So yeah, tough to say, but I've I've got a feeling. Let's see. We all we can do is prepare for every outcome and every contingency, right? And um and give it a crack. Yeah, I uh, I tend to think that there's nothing more real than uh, here's the source material, right? Read it for yourself yeah, exactly. and, uh, <laughs> and make your own decision. Uh, exactly. What can people at home do? So it's about a week out until uh, this uh, this decision gets made, and yes, there may be appeals depending on how it goes. There's pardons, you know, there's some kind of these uh, external factors. But in the next week or so, what can an individual at home do? Is sure, it sure. literally get on Twitter and talk about it, or are there other things that they can do? Yeah, um, I've thought about the Twitter one quite a bit uh, because in the early days I thought it doesn't make much difference, right? But um, I've been at Amnesty for for a few years now and I have genuinely seen the difference it makes when a lot of people come together at the right time and, you know, you might think the trending on Twitter thing is pretty trivial. I used to think it was pretty trivial. Maybe in some ways it still is. But I, I think that it... I've seen Assange trending on Twitter every single day by like one or two days here and there for the last two weeks and scattered throughout the year. So um, I think it does have impact. I think that Twitter is is actually a small sample size of public sentiment, but I think that it's an important one that politicians are aware of um, and do respond to, not all the time, but sometimes when it's important to respond to because of how it relates to the, to the party or the politician. So... Um, Amnesty will be running a Twitter storm, um, I believe, in, in early January um, to condemn this. We've been making a lot of statements on Twitter, encouraging retweets. We've been working with people around the world like celebrities, um, journalists, you know, filmmakers like MIA, Oliver Stone, um, you know, reaching out to people like Russell Brand and Noam Chomsky, who's shown a lot of support as well. And whoever it may be from all walks of life once again, to show support on Twitter and, and, and online. Um, and uh, and it, it does have an impact because it snowballs. And that's a big word I like to use with Amnesty is you can watch a campaign start from like a concept and then watch it slowly snowball, gather steam. And this is why, you know, um, campaigning and international movements are so important because they can do that because you have mass numbers um, and you don't ever think that your voice isn't important. I'll tell you right now, when when I started campaigning on this, I thought like, you know, there was there was about this much of a of a good shot to really make traction. But in my mind, I was like, we can make it happen. Let's let's just give this a really good crack and don't let up. Be persistent, which is one of Amnesty's main values. Be courageous, have integrity, do it the right way. Uh, and and I've, if I look back on the last year and a half, it's been insane how much it's changed. And 
for everyone at home, even if you are like kind of on the fence, but you think that you're only 60, 40, you're more in favor, speak up about it. Talk to your friends and family. Don't be afraid of conversations that, that, that might um, be uncomfortable. That's where most growth and progress happens when you have uncomfortable conversations. Right. And with Assange, that's again, one that I've seen people don't want to touch it. And then once they start learning a bit more about it, they go, okay, you know what? Why not? I'm more informed. And, and, and this is a big area of passion as well, because information if it's the wrong information and then you spread it talking about viruses if you spread it that goes to that person to that person that person all of a sudden everyone thinks something which is a little fraction of what the actual issue is and again like you said source material that's why it's so important in in the right contexts um, and that's why you should be informed and you should really check yourself before spreading or talking about certain information that applies to not just Assange but everything right and uh and so, yeah, I think that um, I think that people should speak up on Twitter. They should sign Amnesty's petition, which I can share, um, which was four hundred thousand. Um, and Sydney here, representing the global movement, we've been pushing hard for our Aussie. Uh, you know, got four hundred thousand signatures. We handed it over to the U.S. Embassy in in Sydney, um, and it was one of the largest Australian petitions ever signed by Amnesty. Um, and have, have had a lot of allies on board supporting us that you wouldn't expect. So I think that can continue to grow and just speak up online. I'm sure people have machine learning algorithms detecting how often, a, you know, certain keywords are put up online and, okay, public sentiment saying this, maybe we should respond to it. That's the tech side kind of, kind of thinking but, uh, or talking. But I think that with that in mind, just put it out there. You know, talk to your friends and family, talk to your local members. If anyone can assist, please feel free to reach out. We can find new networks and connections to try and talk to, to the different parties and see if we can come to a to an agreement because this is crucial. Look, if we're a democracy, this is one of the principles we have to stand on. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Um, for you personally, you're interested also in Bitcoin, blockchain, crypto. How does that yeah. kind of intersect here? And, and what are your thoughts on, uh, on that stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm working on an app actually um, called Thinkers. And this is actually in line with with what I've just spoken about when it comes to quality information, we are at a point in our history where um, where there is an abundance of information online. There's no question about that. And that has been one of the biggest talking points of the year is fake news, misinformation, these were buzzwords thrown around. Um, myself and, and a team of people who are very passionate, Jay, Mel, and um, Lucien Wilker, uh, and Dan, we're all very passionate about um, quality information and empowering people to critically think. And we think the solution is critical thinking. So um, with that um, comes in mind a long-term process of analyzing the information, all the nuance, don't just think black and white and and um, and like any skill with the community as well. It's a lot easier. You can practice it. So what is the context, you know, et cetera. So we built through, funnily enough, um, uh, AI and machine learning, an algorithm that detects the keywords um, in, in every article that you read. It's a, it's a browser extension that will be integrated into an app um, in January. So coming very soon. Um, and it scans the page and goes, here's who owns this publication. Here's the bias, which you can vote on yourself, um, which gets aggregated. Um, you know, um, he, this it's an opinion piece or it was really new, therefore it could be developing. These are all the things people need to think about when they consume information. So if you don't have the source material, here's a good way to help you think through the news you consume every day. Now, building the app, we wanted to build it with, um, you know, trust and privacy in mind from the get-go. So blockchain being a big factor, um, you know, having um, NFTs um, that we would give when we launch over the coming weeks, uh, we want to give pioneer NFTs to new users that sign up so that we can reward quality journalism on our app. We want it to be a citizen journalism platform for local stories. We want to reward critical thinking. We want to reward, um, you know, uh, um, quality nuanced discussion, not just the kind of back and forths that we do see on Twitter. And this is again, a thing that I've seen from so many different people going, I can't go on Twitter, man. I can't talk on this platform. I just get yelled at. It's just like yelling on this side, yelling on that side, echo chamber after echo chamber, polarization, right? Espousing. So our solution was um, well-moderated, community-driven um, rooms to talk in nuance about a lot of these conversations. And so that's going to be a big task, but we think we can certainly do it. Um, and we want everyone to kind of help and build with us. Um, so, yeah, that was Thinker's. Uh, .io and hopefully, yeah, next month will be very exciting. Um, we want to introduce a token in future and, and work towards a decentralized social media platform for everyone. 
It's awesome. Before we get into the rapid fire questions to uh, wrap yeah. it up, where can people find you on the internet? Yeah, I'm, I'm on Twitter, um, you know, as well. I'm on there. So Chimera Gamage, so my full name. Um, and uh, that's, that's, I would say, um, where I spend a little bit of my time. Um, I'm not too prominent on any other social medias just yet. I'm, I'm, I would hope that after we get thinkers up and running, we can try and start a new platform and see what we can do with maybe a bit more characters so we can flesh out our thoughts a bit further before we dive into things. Um, but yeah, please feel free to reach out to me um, there um, or on email directly, which is um, chimiragamaj7 um, at gmail.com. Awesome, man. Uh, ask the same two questions, everyone, before I wrap up, and then you get to ask me when to finish it. First question is, what is the most important book that you've ever read? Oh, that's a good one. Um, not to be corny, but probably The Alchemist. I know a lot of people would probably say that, but I, I've got to buy my nephew who's 17 a Christmas, uh, sorry, I've got to get him a birthday present. Um, I was going to get it for him for Christmas, but I thought, you know what? I'm going to give him The Alchemist. He's 17. I want him to read it just because of the anecdotes and the way to see the world, little signs, symbols around um, the story and journey that you go on. I just think it's a beautiful, really well-written story that you should keep in the back of your mind. Yeah, that's a great, uh, great suggestion. Uh, second question, more fun. Aliens, are you a believer or a non-believer? Yeah. yeah. If you asked me about two years ago, I would have said probably not. Um, like a lot of people during COVID have had a bit of extra time to look at stuff. I would say yes. Yeah. I uh, I agree. I didn't need COVID. I, I didn't need COVID to push me down the rabbit hole. But uh, but <laughs> yeah. once you go down, man, it is uh, it's hard to say no. Once you're there, you're like, are you kidding me? And anyway, this year's been an intro, a big one for that, right? So I think this is going to continue to grow over time. Yeah. I love it. Uh, what's the one question you have for me to wrap up? Um, I'm not going to ask if you're bullish on Bitcoin because I know you are. So I'm going to say, what do you think will be the biggest um, uh, startup trend for 2021? 2021? Um I think just the continued uh, financialization of assets and, uh, and kind of the digitization of those assets, right? So you see things like Pipe uh, as basically taking recurring revenue and it's turning it into a financial asset. I think people are going to find all kinds of things to kind of financialize. Um, mm-hmm. But also we're going to see every stock bond currency commodity go from uh, kind of this electronic QCIP world to a digital world. Markets will become 24-7, 365. Right. You'll kind of really, really break open accessibility for people around the world um, and kind of just rebuild the financial system for a digital global world. Like, you know, yeah. not that groundbreaking of an idea, but a lot of work that goes into doing that. Um, but, but I think that's kind of where we're headed, uh, you know, hopefully in the next couple of years for sure. Absolutely. And, and I know you think it's, not, you know, as you said, not too groundbreaking, but um, the more I've learned about these systems and where it's headed, to be honest, the more you read, the more you learn, you, like I said before, you kind of just know. This is where it's going to head. It's it's an amazing concept and technology, and I think I think we're just at the precipice. We're just getting started. I uh, I tend to agree, my friend. All right, listen, thank you so much for doing this, Shamira. I really think that people are going to uh, enjoy hearing more about Julian Assange. And if this kind of you know speaks to you, you think it's a big deal, please uh, please go tell family, friends, and uh, let's talk about it online. We've got about a week before uh, the decision, and uh, every little bit helps. So uh, thanks so much for uh, for coming on and doing this. Thank you, man. My pleasure. My pleasure.